Jigsaw puzzles are an age-old pastime, and with more people staying home during the COVID-19 pandemic, they're seeing a resurgence in popularity. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. British mapmaker and engraver John Spilsbury is credited with making the first jigsaw puzzle in 1762. He was a cartographer and created his dissected maps, as he called them, to teach kids geography. On today's show, we're talking with modern-day puzzle makers Adam Silver and Sarah Dickinson. They're the founders of the New York Puzzle Company. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time. Sure, thanks for having me. Adam, welcome to Cityscape. I appreciate it, thanks. I never want to assume, so let me ask you, with so many of us stuck at home, has the pandemic been good for the puzzle business? Uh, well, uh, to be honest, it has been fantastic for the puzzle business. Uh, we weren't really sure going into it what was going to happen for us. We were a little you know, hesitant about everything going on at the beginning. But as it turned out, people sort of rediscovered this pastime as uh, one of their new favorites. And, and things were um, very, very busy, still, still busy, but really there was a, a big jump in puzzle demand for sure as people rediscovered this, uh, this old pastime. It's interesting that you say rediscovered this old pastime. Adam, talk to me about the pastime of puzzle making and when was there a lull in puzzle making? Yeah, so we started our company in 2007, um, which was, you know, during the uh, economic downturn um, back then. And so um, we actually caught, I think, puzzles on their way back up because people at that time were sort of being a little more cost conscious and trying to find activities that they could do at home for not a tremendous amount of money. Um, and so I think that that's really when puzzles started coming back into the public consciousness a little bit more. Um, they've always been there. There's always been people that do puzzles, but I think for more of a mainstream consumer, that's when it really when it started picking up again. What inspired the two of you to get into the puzzle business? Well, I can speak for me. So I originally was an attorney in New York City, uh, and I was trying to find a way to not be an attorney in New York City. Um, and one of my thoughts was, well, I can try to try to self-publish my photography that I was doing at the time. Um, it turns out that that is not what we focus on in our imagery, but, but uh, that was sort of an impetus for me to call Sarah, um, who at the time was uh, doing some pretty artistic things with Metro cards and making uh, purses and bags and, and things of that nature and wallets. Uh, and so I called her and we, we decided that using uh, puzzles as a sort of uh, a, a mode of uh, publication for interesting artwork might be a venue that we could sort of work on together. I'm really curious to hear what that call was like, Sarah, when you sort of plotted this puzzle course. You know, I, I'm wondering if it was a call. In my recollection, I feel like, oh no, maybe it was a call. I think I was outside of Shake Shack, the original Shake Shack in Bryant Park, in, in my memory. And, um, and I had had, like Adam said, I'd, I'd had um, a belt and bag business. Uh, and I was making various different kinds of bags. And one of the ones I made was a MetroCard bag. And I had approached um, the licensing department at the MTA to, to sort of do that legally. And I'd been working with them. And so I had this license to make those. And that w went on for a couple of years. That's sort of fallen by the wayside since. But since I had this license with the MTA and Adam had this idea for puzzles, because he's the He's the big puzzle fan in this. I, I am a puzzle fan, but he's much more of a puzzler than I am. Um, and so he had the idea to, 
you know, I think we were talking about it and he said, you know what, I don't think anyone does the New York City subway on a puzzle. And we looked into it and it turns out if anyone ever had in the past, they weren't at that time. And so we thought that would be a great thing. You know, it's such an iconic image that all New Yorkers know and to put it on a puzzle would be, you know, how, how could someone not be doing that? So I think that was kind of, um, that was one of the great ideas. And then of course, these images, the photography of New York City, we, we started out with some images of the Brooklyn Bridge and some fire stations and fire state building. Um, and, then, and then it went from there. So Adam, you grew up being an avid puzzle person? Uh, I did, yeah. I did puzzles as a kid, probably up until the beginning of high school, uh, and never really thought I would be doing it professionally, but I did work at a puzzle store uh, growing up in high school uh, during the holiday seasons. Um, so I, I did have at least some knowledge of the different brands that were out there and sort of what images that they were sort of putting on things. Um, and one of the things we realized very early is that there was a sort of a uh, lack of interesting sort of modern artistic imagery in the puzzle world uh, that I think people were sort of looking for that, uh, that no one was doing. I want to talk more about your inventory of puzzles, but I also want to know from you, Adam, are puzzles more than just an activity? Do they mean something more to you than that? I mean, uh, I think overall in, this day and age, especially, it's it's more of a feeling of uh, sort of being around people in an intimate but safe environment because you're doing it amongst loved ones at home, um, especially in sort of pandemic times. Um, so from that perspective, I do think they've taken on sort of a, a little bit more of a emotional feeling behind it um, and the sense of accomplishment when you're done and it's a little bit meditative at the same time. So I think that there is sort of a, sort of an emotional and uh, headspace component to it where it does distract you from sort of the outside world and give you a little bit more of a sense of security. Sarah, have you become more of a puzzle person? Do you do more of them yourself these days now? I will say I, I do more of them than I used to, but it's it's such a luxury for me to be able to. Um, I have a three small kids and not enough surface area in my home. So, you know, I sort of have to choose between having dinner on a regular basis and doing a puzzle. I usually end up having dinner. Uh, I've got a lot of small hands that want to mess up, mess up tabletops. Um, but when I do get to do them, I'm, you know, I always, I, I obviously, I we design them, we pick out the images and I always say, oh, that's one that I really love to do. So when I get to do it, on vacation or something, or if I we go to someone's house and we give it as a as a present and we get to do it at their house, it's such a it's such a treat that I actually get to do one. I understand the New York Toy Fair was eye opening for you. How so? Um, <laughs> it was the first trade show that we ever did, um, and we didn't really know what to expect. We had a very small booth in the the downstairs basement in the back. Um, and I think the most eye-opening part about the toy fair was really how corporate it was compared to sort of what we thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, you, you think toy fair and you, you think you can walk around and see all these fun games and, you know, see all the new board games that people are putting out or, or new action figures and things like that. But everything is very secretive. Everyone builds super high walls so you can't see in. So there's no like, spying going on. You have to be on a checklist in order to like get in to see what, you know, new toys are coming out in the market. Um, there's people with clipboards definitely like marking people's names off and it, and it just was a lot more big business than, and I, you know, you know, it's big business, but it's sort of the, 
the sort of corporateness of it was really sort of uh, disorienting for some reason. What's the process like for licensing art and books and turning them into puzzles? I do most of the licensing, so I can sort of speak to that a little bit. But to start with, it was uh, getting a lot of no's from people, right? So, you know, we have one license with the MTA and you, you approach three or four other companies and, and they say, you know, you're not, you're only doing six puzzles. Why would we want to, you know, invest in you guys in a license? Um, but once you get a couple of licenses under your belt, then it's sort of a more of a, a lot of licensors come to you and, and pitch you on ideas. And there is a licensing expo out in Las Vegas that usually happens every year where you can walk around and make appointments um, with people representing different brands and, and talk through different deals and things like that that might be out there. So our first big license that we got was really with the New Yorker magazine. Um, and that was really sort of what pushed us into the territory of really being able to be a bigger player in the licensing game um, than, uh, than we had been in the past. Uh, so that uh, was back in 2009, I think. That's when we started doing covers of the New Yorker magazine on puzzles. And now we branched out into things like National Geographic, the book art from Harry Potter. We actually do um, poster art from NPR, uh, one of our new licenses. So um, that's pretty fun. Uh, and, and we branch into kids' puzzles as well with uh, sort of traditional uh, book brands. We do a lot of literary licenses. We tend to focus on sort of a literary audience. Of course, WFUV is an NPR affiliate. Can you tell us more about your NPR line of puzzles? Um, yeah, they have, um, well, we found out that NPR Actually, they had approached us because they wanted to do some custom puzzles. Um, and we did some custom puzzles for them. And then when we were sort of looking into that, we saw that they had, you know, these archives with these fantastic posters, a lot of podcast art. And it really went along with our aesthetic. Um, so we, we approached them with the concept. And I don't believe they do a lot of other licensing. So we're, we're maybe among... The early the early ones that they do but we have some some really great imagery of um we do a puzzle with the podcast tiles uh with various different podcasts on there and then just really great imagery kind of depicting people listening to radio being calm being at one with themselves as they're appreciating the the npr radio you mentioned harry potter i understand that the harry potter puzzle the majority of them sold out recently uh yeah well we we've been selling out of a lot of stuff recently <laughs> it's hard to keep many things in stock um especially back in in march april may um so but you know we were getting everything back online things are coming in we're, we're restocking ourselves constantly but um yeah harry potter has definitely always been a, a very very popular one we make all of our puzzles here in, in the usa so uh we we have a uh, partner with the factory here um and obviously with covid protocols and things of that nature we don't want too many people working in the factory at once and so um there is a there's an upper limit to how many puzzles really can really be produced uh, in a given week or month uh and so we do get puzzles back in stock, but we also run out of stock for extended period of time while we, while we try to get them back in. Tell me more about the puzzle making process. What's involved with making a puzzle? Well, I guess on, on the, the, the very beginning uh, is, is choosing your images. And that's a long process that Adam and I are both very into. We, we start out, we sort of storyboard concepts and we, we have some Pinterest pages and we look at all kinds of images and we just collect images from anywhere possible. We take suggestions. Sometimes we do polls with our customers. Um, uh, and then once we have the image, 
then the big question is how many pieces and you know we decide between the thousand five hundred seven fifty even lower piece count sometimes we do three hundred um to see what kind of quality picture it is if it's going to be more for a, a specific audience that kind of thing and then once that happens I, I i do all the the design and the layout for the the boxes and the puzzles themselves so i'll design the well since we we don't produce the artwork ourselves we get the artwork from our licensors and then i'll design a box that goes with that particular line and then once that's done we send it to our manufacturer and and they they'll take it from there they print printing is is one process they do the printing on a on a it's almost like a poster sheet if you can imagine that and then they glue that to a piece of cardboard and then that piece of cardboard with the um with the poster printed on it they'll run that through the press and that cuts there's like a there's a die that's a specific that whatever size piece so there'll be a thousand piece die that will stamp that down and it'll cut through the the board and then it all gets collected into the box which was printed separately and made it at a sort of a separate box station and then that all gets shrink wrapped together and off to the warehouse yeah a few things that people tend not to think about with puzzles until they start really doing them is how to reduce the glare in the puzzle. Uh, so when we go to print it, we print it on a linen type paper in order to have more ridges so that the light doesn't bounce off it as much. Um, how the puzzles are gonna fit together. So we tend to use a much thicker board than standard. So we use what is called an 80 point board. Uh, I think industry standards around 59. So our puzzles are a little bit thicker than most. Um, and then we also wanna be somewhat environmentally conscious. So. Um, we use recycled chipboard. We don't use sort of like new produced chipboard. So our, our cardboard is all recycled. Um, and then uh, there is some shrink wrap on the outside that is recyclable. Um, but we're working actually at the moment to find a biodegradable shrink wrap uh, manufacturer that we can replace our current shrink wrap with. Um, and sort of being socially responsible and environmentally conscious is is pretty important to us. We're members of one percent for the planet. So one percent of our proceeds go to environmental charities. Uh, every year and, and we are definitely conscious of you know trying not to take too much paper out uh, without putting something back in. I was going to ask you about that because on your website it says you're a proud member of one percent for the planet. Do you want to talk to us more about that? Yeah um, I would say we've been a member for about five years now um, and that's always been a really part an important part of um, the business for us was to you know give back to to the environment especially um in my former life i used to work for patagonia and they were um, they were a big member of that they're sort of the founding member i believe um and so that was always something that i wanted to bring to any business that i was a part of um so so yeah basically the the, the principle is simple you just give one percent of your uh sales numbers to charities we've we've chosen various charities you know you can switch them up um just so long as you're you're doing that one percent, we um, we give to Surfrider Foundation. That's a big one. Um, 350.org, the Sierra Club, um, another organization called Solar Sister that brings solar power to um, to women women in developing African countries. Um, so it's it's a really uh, one of my favorite parts of the of my job is getting to sort of pick these charities and work with them and and um, and get to give some of that back. 
In terms of levels of difficulty, do you think what makes a puzzle challenging depends on the image on the puzzle, the amount of pieces, or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of three things. So one is how monochromatic the image is, um, as opposed to having sort of different areas of colors that you can block out and do separately. Um, the cut of the puzzle, so there's a difference between what's called a ribbon cut and a random cut. A ribbon cut, if you can imagine, it looks like a grid. Uh, so the two innies and the two outies on each piece are on opposite sides. So every piece looks the same, even though there's slight variations that make them only fit in specific places. Um, and then a random cut uh, has multiple shapes. So uh, they're not mirror images of each other in terms of the actual cuts. There's some angles in there. Um, and then uh, piece count is, is obviously part of that too. So those three things combined, I would say a random cut puzzle is probably slightly easier than a ribbon cut puzzle because the pieces can at least be categorized. Uh, the thousand pieces obviously are easier than 500 pieces. And then the more color that's in an image in different areas that you can block out into separate regions, the easier it's gonna be. That being said, how do you approach creating a puzzle for an adult compared to creating a puzzle for a child? Mm, I think um, when, when we look at our adult puzzle images, um, we definitely look for the, the areas of color throughout and the different um, patterns and sort of you need to have busyness almost throughout the image. Um, and for a more difficult puzzle, it's okay if there's, you know, a, a, a larger area that's a solid color or a gradation that doesn't have exactly something going on in it. Um, whereas in a kid's puzzle, you don't want to have, you know, those big areas of, of blue or of sky or of grass that are all the same. So really in, in the kids' puzzles, we, we want to make sure that there's things going on everywhere. Whereas, you know, the adult puzzles, and that's also where we, where we kind of pick between the 500 and 1,000. If there's not enough detail, we'll sort of, we'll usually make that a 500 piece to make it easier on that end since there's, the, we don't want there to be, you know, a 1,000 piece with no detail is just too difficult. What are among the kids' puzzles you have out? Um, one of our big licenses that we do is uh, uh, Peter Rabbit. We've got um, sort of Peter Rabbit with Mr. McGregor's Garden and Peter Rabbit and his friends. Um, we also do um, a license with Pout Pout Fish. Uh, if you're familiar with him, he's a, he's a little fish that uh, is kind of unhappy in his life until someone comes along and, and gives him a kiss and tells him to be happy. So he has lots of good lessons to learn there. Um, and also Leo Leone and friends. Um, uh, if he's a, a little mouse. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we focus on kids' literature for the most part, kids' books. Um, so we do Uni the Unicorn. Uh, we do um, Emily Winthrop Martin's Dream World, Wonderful Things You Will Be. Uh, we're doing a new series with Dan Brown's new book, Wild Symphony, that's coming out next month. Um, and we do, so it's all taken from, from children's books and literature. What's new in the works in your adult line? Oh, well, we're, we're really excited about our new line of, um, we're bringing out Gourmet magazine, um, magazine covers. We have six new Gourmet magazine covers. And those, we'd actually tried those um, many, many years ago, way back in the beginning and kind of discontinued that, but we're bringing them back. And they've got these beautiful um, images of sort of, food items that we, um, you know, they're, come, they're from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So they're, they're very vintage, but really cool. Um, and also we're bringing back our house and garden license. So that's also kind of the, 
the homey um, DIY kind of crowd, but also again from the that's where 30s, 40s, 50s images. Um, and also a new license with Neil Packer. He's um, an artist, illustrator, um, author who came out with a book called One of a Kind. And he has these really interesting detailed images from that book that we are, um, we're doing a puzzle series on as well. How competitive of a market is the puzzle industry? More competitive now. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, uh, I think anyone who could make puzzles tried to make puzzles in this past year. Um, mostly overseas, because uh, that's where most of the manufacturing capabilities were, because uh, all the U.S. manufacturers had booked up pretty much for the entire year. Um, I would say it's weirdly competitive, but weirdly friendly at the same time. So one of the things with puzzle companies is that we all have a niche in the puzzle world where our themes and our artwork uh, are sort of uh, unique to to our company. Um, so there's companies that do very collage type of things. There's companies that do fine art that only do sort of fine art from fine, from masters. Um, there's us that does like a lot of literary stuff. So everyone has like a, a little bit of a niche in the puzzle world. Um, and so we, we sort of travel in stores together very well. Like if you see us in the store, you'll see two or three of the same uh, other companies in the store because there's different people that want different types of artwork. So I would say it's more competitive now just because there's more people making puzzles and so shelf space in stores is more at a premium uh, now that there's more companies in the market. But in terms of like competitiveness in, in, in the, the style of artwork, um, each, you know, since each company has their own, it's a little bit of, uh, of less competitiveness in, in that respect. What's your favorite puzzle in the collection, Adam? Uh, my favorite puzzle currently is uh, a New Yorker cover called uh, Ghoul's Russian, um, which is uh, Frankenstein holding a box of chocolates waiting for, uh, or uh, I guess Frankenstein is making a new body um, for uh, that's mummy and he, the, the monster is waiting for the mummy to wake up from the electricity holding a box of chocolates. Uh, it's, it's both a Halloween and like a Valentine's kind of thing. Uh, and I just, I think it's a clever, a clever image. Sarah, how about you? Um, I actually, I have mine right here. I was just looking at it. This is one of my favorites. It's the New Yorker with um, flamingos being photographer. It's called um, Flamingo Photographer. Just, I, I love the colors. I love the um, kind of idea of being out there in the, the warm sun, the palm trees behind you. So that's one of my favorites. I've been it's been waiting to be done for the longest time. I haven't even got a chance to open it, but that's the next one I'm going to do as soon as I have a free couple of hours. Adam, as an avid puzzle person, do you have an ideal puzzle in terms of image and piece count? Uh, a thousand pieces or higher, for sure. I don't really have an ideal image. It's sort of whatever is striking my fancy at the time. Um, I, I tend to do puzzles and then take them apart, so I don't frame them. Um, but a lot of people do frame them when they're done. Uh, so I would say just anything that would take me more than sort of an evening to do that I could have it out for, for a couple of days. What's the best way to start a puzzle? Border or by images? Uh, well, I'm, I, I mean, most people start with the border, but you've got to have enough space to start with the border and be able to spread the pieces all everywhere. Uh, when I was living in a much smaller apartment, I would start in one corner and then sort of work out from that corner until you get to the far corner. Uh, but that is an atypical way to do puzzles, I would say. I'd say I think starting with the border and then 
working with uh, different colors is, is probably the best way. I remember you're bringing back memories now of me being a kid and tiptoeing around the living room as my brother was doing his puzzles because I didn't want to step on any of the pieces or break up the puzzle. <laughs> In the event of a missing piece, what do you advise people do? Well, on the back of all of our puzzles, there's um, an email address. They can write to that email address and our fantastic customer service team will respond. Um, usually we encourage them to first look for the piece because many, many, many times when the piece is missing, it's not a manufacturer problem. It's the cat or the couch cushions or the uncle who came by and put a piece in his pocket so he could be the last one to do it and then forgot about it and put it in the wash. Um, but if it's actually missing and if it's actually a manufacturer issue, we will um, send, a, send you another puzzle to replace that one. Because it can be very frustrating when you get to the end and that last piece is missing. No question about that. Any advice or tips for people who are not puzzle people but might want to give it a try, have been a little intimidated to buy a puzzle, try a puzzle? One of our um, best items that we have for uh, for people like that are we do mini puzzles, which are 100-piece puzzles. They're seven by nine inches, and they're really great way to get back into the game. You know, it doesn't take that much. You can do it on like, it's about, you, know, you can work on the size of a laptop, a little, um, we used to say a tray table in an airplane, but that's uh, not big these days since no one's really traveling anymore. But they, they don't take up much room. They take about 20 minutes to do. They're the same size pieces as a thousand piece puzzle, but just with much fewer of them. And, the, and we have them in the same, all, almost all of our licenses have those, um, those mini puzzles. I would say don't start with a thousand piece puzzle. Uh, mm -hmm. You might get frustrated and then decide that it's not for you. Uh, so our 500 piece puzzles, are 18 inches by 24 inches when they're done. So the pieces are actually pretty manageable. They're, they're pretty big pieces. Um, and I would say, if you don't want to start with a mini puzzle, start with a 500 piece puzzle and make sure that there's a lot of different colors. in. What would you say have been the greatest lessons you've learned since starting this company? I think uh, one big one is uh, patience. You gotta have a lot of patience, especially when working with such a variety of licensors. Um, you know, we have over how many, 20 or 30 different companies we're working with and they all have their different standards and expect different things of us and have different timelines. Um, and sometimes we'll come out with a whole concept and then it turns out it's not at all what they had in mind. So we have to scrap that whole idea and start fresh. So, you know, a lot of patience and learning to accept other people's ideas as well as our own and kind of meld those together. Uh, yeah, and for me, I would say uh, sort of along those lines is things generally take more time than you think they will. Um, from start to finish, you plan for the best, but at the end of the day, you need to really factor in another two months to like really get things done when you, when you don't think you do. Um, and so organization is, and attention to detail are two sort of massive things that if you want to have a successful company, you need both those things from the beginning. Sounds like skills that are also helpful if you're making a puzzle, if you're putting a puzzle together. Mm. All three of those. <laughs> Very true. You referenced that it all started with the New York City subway. Talk to me a little bit more, if you will, how New York inspires your company. Well, it was definitely the start of our company was, we called ourselves New York Company, not only because we were living in New York, but because- New York Puzzle Company. New York Puzzle Company, yeah. Um, because 
we had planned on really focusing on New York City themes to start, which is why we started the subway map images of New York. Even the New Yorker license was sort of an extension on that idea. Um, I would still say that our puzzles tend to, because they tend to be more literary and more artistic in nature, um, they tend to do well in cities, whereas some puzzles maybe don't do as well in cities. Uh, maybe just because of the sensibilities of people that um, that are living in cities that that like the type of artwork that we like. Um, you know, being from New York City, we have our tastes, and maybe that was informed a lot by us living in New York. Sarah, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, also, and just the the fact that the New Yorker was one of our our big initial um, sort of break. There was actually, yeah, our second license, I would say, after the the subway, and the subway brought one kind of aesthetic, but the New Yorker really was just such a, a huge breakthrough for us because their covers are so classically iconically New York, and and they do have a wide variety of of other things as well, but. Their images, they, they started um, being published, I think, in 1927, I want to say, if Adam can fact check me on that one. 1925, February 1925. 25, okay. But then they've had a um, weekly illustrated cover ever since then. So their archives are just massive. And it's really just fantastic to be able to look through those and see the over the course of time, everything that's happened and how the the artwork has changed, but always you can sort of see that that classic New York image in there. And I feel like that's um, on that end of the things that that's been a, a real uh, inspiration from New York. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Sarah, thank you. No, thanks a lot. It was great to be here. Adam Silver and Sarah Dickinson are the founders of the New York Puzzle Company. More info at NewYorkPuzzleCompany.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. My thanks to producer Matty Bristow. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.